This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our three best stories every week. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa and has a family full of heroes. And by the way, she listens on WHO, and that's a great station in Des Moines, home of Paul Harvey and so many other broadcasting legends. And we're honored and we're grateful to be on that great flagship station in the great state of Iowa. And Joy writes and records those stories for us. She's told a few for us, actually. And here is Joy Neal Kidney and her story titled Reconciling Dad, the Farmer I Knew, with Dad, the Veteran Pilot. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke. Satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II flying fortress an old B-17, like the one in the movie Memphis Bell, in the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer. As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing Big Smith overalls, where in the bib, he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small, curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate, throwing back his head when he laughed, penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper, catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them, that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze 
buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly. It sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway. Nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And it's so great to hear someone trying to understand her dad's other life, that life before the life. And my goodness... Take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Join Neil Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories.
continue with our American stories. And we have a few regular contributors that we like to call our own that we've discovered. Uh, some just were people who sent in their stories. Others we bumped into along the way. And folks just said, you got to meet this guy. He's our resident storyteller. And every town's got a few people who are the resident storytellers. And that brings us to the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose voice and life will most certainly captivate you. It has certainly captivated us. In today's episode, Bob brings us to a childhood passion, boxing, and the match the Marines forced him to fight during the Vietnam War. Often when my parents returned from home from an evening out at the cocktail lounge or at the staff club, my mother would dash up to her room and go to bed, leaving my father to have a couple drinks by himself in the kitchen. It would be at these times when my father would walk into my bedroom, turn on the light and wait for me to wake up. I would pull the covers over my head and ask him, what are you doing turning the light on for? I've got school in the morning. He would stand in the doorway with this pouty look on his face like I hurt his feelings and say, Gee, you don't mind if I check to see if my children are safe and okay, do you? What kind of father do you think I am? But now that you're awake, why don't you come downstairs and I'll fix you something to eat. I'm going to go change. Why don't you get everything ready? These late night conversations around the kitchen table occurred many times over the years and throughout my life. And it was here, sitting alone across the table from him, that I came to know the man I called Dad. I would go down to the kitchen and get some eggs and bread and start putting everything together. He never fixed anything for himself. I, I got that by now. I had to fix everything. That was one of the reasons why I was there. Late at night, I knew he was partial to B&M Boston baked beans on saltines and herring and sour cream. My God, I used to look at it and just think I'm sick. I asked him how could he eat that stuff. He replied that growing up in his family, they were very poor. He said he even ate bean sandwiches at school. He said he was so poor that at Christmas time his father would cut holes in his pockets so he had something to play with. He would arrive in his bathrobe, boxer shorts, and t-shirt, make himself a drink, and sit at the seat in the corner. The throne, I called it. From that seat, he could see everyone in the kitchen, the stairway, and the front door. Most importantly, it was within arm's length of the refrigerator. The kitchen was the room that was the center in our house. We had a downstairs family room, but no one bothered to use it, probably because it didn't have a refrigerator to chill the beer or an ice machine for cocktails. Settling in with a smoke and some fish and beer, he would just sit, resting his large body upon his elbows, head hanging slightly, and stare down at his drink. I would sit across from him wondering, what the heck am I doing here? I gotta go to school in the morning, and I knew he's not gonna let me sleep in simply because I'm down here being company for him. It certainly seemed to be of no concern to him. There are not many things to talk with him about, but you know, I knew by then that he didn't invite me there to talk, he invited me down to listen. You know, being nine years of age, I was too young to have been in the Marines, drink alcohol, chase women, or do anything that was of interest to him. I didn't have any stories of anything like that that he'd even find amusing. He was not the type to do child talk the way mothers do, you know, like, well, how's my little baby? And what did you do in school today? Oh my, what a beautiful finger painting. 
No, no, not my father. He preferred talking up and not down. His world consisted of subjects, of adult men and women. He wasn't interested in what was happening in fourth grade. The distance across the table was only a few feet away, but from my seat in this theater of my father, I watched and listened to a man who by any measure lived a life that boys could only imagine in their games. I would listen and wonder and wish that someday I could grow up and be like my father. Little did I realize then that he was truly unique and a copy is not the original. If I wanted to get into a conversation with him, I had to take it to him or I would garner no attention. By nine, I'd had enough of these experiences with him to know some subjects that would engage him other than the Marines. My favorite was boxing. He loved boxing and so did I. He could recreate the fight he listened to on the radio when Max Bear killed his opponent in the ring. Round by round, he could describe the power in Bear's punches as legendary. My father thought Bear would reign forever if it weren't for the death of Frankie Campbell. Instead, Max Bear retired early and moved to Hollywood, where, with his handsome face and reputation, opened many studio and bedroom doors. My father liked that story a lot. I knew the questions to ask him to bring us closer together during those late nights at the kitchen table. I wanted to be a fighter. Football was fun, but there were too many people and too many rules. Boxing's just two men, shorts, a cup, socks, gloves, and shoes. It doesn't get any more basic than that. When the fight ends, there's seldom any confusion about who is the winner. Usually, it's the one still standing that gets the glory. He asked me if I wanted to box for the city team down at the rec center. He thought since I was always fighting in school, that learning to fight as a sport would be a good outlet for me. He also said that since I had such a big mouth, I better learn to take care of myself. The Army Field House at Fort Buckner, Okinawa was an enormous athletic facility and included an indoor pistol range, basketball courts, and a boxing room. It was in that room as I was listening to the whirring of my speed bag that I was approached by a Marine gunnery sergeant. He watched my hands working the bag into different rhythms and asked me, hey, are you in the Marines? I told him I was and continued my workout and then he asked me if I minded meeting someone. Walking with him to the ring, he introduced me to the regimental boxing coach. And he asked if I would go a couple rounds with him. I said, I pass. I'm not in shape enough to go a couple rounds, frankly. I'm not interested in getting involved with a team as I'm heading back to the United States in a month. But some of the team members gathered around and began to tease me with remarks like, Oh, come on now, I won't hurt you. Just two little rounds, that's all. I finally agreed that I would not fight for this guy, but I'd give him the two rounds. He was overweight with a good-sized belly on him, and he was a showboat, intending to entertain his team with me. To me, he was all mouth and out of shape. Worse, his biggest weakness was overestimating his ability while underestimating his opponents before the first round even started. Arrogance in the boxing ring is a very careless and dangerous attitude. As I circled him in the second round, I watched him dance in and out of my reach with what he obviously mistook for footwork. My feet were set shoulder width apart, my right foot set back to the heel and toe stance. A punch like a bullet cannot propel itself. The power of a punch isn't in the hand. It starts with the planted feet set firmly on the ground with legs coiled 
to push that power up through the twisting torso as the force of the blow reaches the shoulder and the arm launches a loaded fist into your opponent's face. His hands were barely up to his shoulders when I greeted him with the first left jab into his face. Knocking him back, I followed with a quick second jab, which left him defenseless. Like a lightning bolt, my right cross surged with all my power from my legs to my glove and caught him flush right into the face. The impact of the blow sent him falling back to the ropes. He gathered himself quickly, but as he approached me, waiting for him in the center of the ring, the bell rang and the round ended. I turned and walked to my corner and took my gloves off, despite his protest to continue. As I told him, I only agreed to do two rounds. I enjoyed walking out of that boxing room, watching him standing in the center of the ring after making a fool of himself. Leaving the gym, the gunny asked me if I would fight on Tuesday night. Oh, I said, Tuesday night? Tuesday night just gives me three days to train, and I knew I needed much more time. I said no, and I left. A couple days later, the Army Special Services promoter called me to ask me if I was from Portland. I said, yeah, I am. Why? He said, I see your name down on the program to fight the heavyweight fight on Tuesday night. I immediately called the gunny who informed me in no uncertain terms that the Marines needed me for that fight and he reminded me with a threat. You may not be aware, Marine, but there are Marines down south fighting in this war while you're up here having a pretty good time on Okinawa. Either you fight Tuesday night or I'm going to put you in for a transfer to Vietnam. I had one month remaining on my tour overseas. Orders to Vietnam would add another six to my overseas duty. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story. You're listening to Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. This is Our American Stories. Turn to Bob McClellan's story. And where we last left off, Bob was being forced to fight in a boxing match or go to Vietnam. Now, I'm waiting in the locker room for my name to be called. I was very angry that I was put in this position. I knew what it took to be out there in the ring, and I didn't have the body or the soul to do it anymore. Three rounds. Didn't sound like much, but when you're out there all alone getting your head pounded for three rounds, you lose all sense of time passing. Being hit is a timeless experience. You feel like it's going to go on forever. I promised myself that this would be my last match, win or lose, and if they sent me down south to Vietnam, or the hell with them, I'll go. I entered the arena and walked up the three steps to the ring. In seconds, we would be left alone to fight. Round one was an opportunity to see what this guy could do. I could see he was a novice and perhaps this was his first fight. He had no footwork whatsoever and certainly no style. He just kept plodding forward with his hands up and his head down, 
He just methodically kept coming forward into my left jabs, looking for an opportunity to hit me. As we threw punches back and forth, you could hear the sound of the slapping of the leather gloves. What was to come, what was needed, was the dull thud of a punch to the head. I took advantage of my height, reach, and experience and kept him back from me to score quick points while not exposing myself too much. We moved across the ring, and as we were next to the ropes, I saw him open his gloves and quickly slam two hard lefts and a right cross into his face. Standing so close to him, I could see the perspiration fly from his head into the air as his head jerked sharply to the right. His jaw went in one direction, his head went in another. The expression on his face indicated that I had heard him all right, but he did not go down or back up as I had expected. Now, I'm within his range. I knew I had to get out into the open center of the ring. It was then that his punch hit me in the jaw. There was no pain from the punch. The torque of the jaw and a stun-numbing feeling caused me to black out. He hit me so hard that both of my gloves flew away from my body towards the center of the ring, exposing my head to more of his punches. I was off balance and I knew I was in trouble. He advanced closer to finish me. His right fist was cocked and ready to take my head off my shoulders. My only thought was to fall down to the canvas, take a couple seconds to ruin his momentum and well-earned advantage, then get up and beat the crap out of him. I don't recall anything after that. I had no idea that I was unconscious. I had no idea of what had happened. Instead of being on the ropes, I found myself coming to face down in the center of the ring after doing two full pirouettes before falling unconscious. The first clue that something was desperately wrong was when I heard the word six. Six, I thought. I tried to remember what it meant. Seven came next. At seven, I knew what had happened, where I was, and what I had to do. Until you return to your senses, there is no sound in the ring when you come out from a knockout. With the bright lights above you, you can't see any of the faces out in the audience screaming. All I could see were the shoes of the referee, hear the count, and stare at the white but rough texture of the canvas. I was up and at him by nine. I chased and punched him like a bag hanging in a boxing room, but he would not go down. I was so frustrated that I didn't hear the first ring of the bell ending the round. Round two, I was getting tired. He advanced and again we exchanged punches, more leather slapping. I tripped over his feet as he hit me with a faint left jab. I found myself once again down on the canvas while the ref started to count again. I was so frustrated, I got up and I was at him once more, scoring blow after blow, but I was unable to knock him down. Exhausted, I sat on my stool watching the doctor decide whether to let him continue. I did open a large cut in the soft tissue of his upper eyelid. He was cut and he was bleeding. I prayed that they would call the fight. I dreaded the prospect of going out there one more round. My hopes faded, however, as I watched the doctor signal the referee to continue the bout. Round three. By now, we were both exhausted. He wanted no part of me, nor I of him. In my mind, I'd already lost the fight. A knockout in the first and a knockdown in the second is hard to overcome on points. Since I had no one in my corner, as my coach never forgave me for embarrassing him, I had no idea how I was doing, and therefore was left with all my doubts, fatigue, and fears. I could see my opponent also wanted to run out the clock, 
I had heard him, but not enough to win. All I could feel was my lungs sucking for air. Clashing with him again, we were exchanging punches, went out of nowhere. I felt that familiar thud of his right cross into the side of my head. I stepped back, I was stunned, and momentarily I went blank. The ref quickly stood in front of me, examining my eyes and asked, how many fingers do you see? I said, three. He said, you okay? I took a second and I said, you know, I don't know. No, I'm not okay. I quit this, screw this. And then I walked over to my corner. There were 33 seconds left to go. His corner jumped into the ring and raised his hand. I felt so humiliated. That night, I had never felt as ashamed and embarrassed in my life until the next morning. A photo of myself and my opponent was sitting on the front page of the sports section of the Morning Star. It was taken as we were along the ropes just before his knockout punch was thrown. The headlines read, Boone upsets McClellan. I quickly read the article which described the fight as a clear victory for me until the third and final round. It said that in spite of the knockouts, I carried the first round on points. I carried the second round too because it was ruled that I had tripped and was not knocked down. The newspaper raised the question as, what had happened? Why did I quit? I had 33 seconds to go. The win was mine. I never forgot that. I came back to the States, saw my folks. And finally one night, the opportunity came to tell my father the story as he sat across from me holding his cigarette. And he lifted his head and with a tone of disappointment, I could see it in his face, he said, you lost because you gave it to him. Now why in the hell would you do that? I used to tell this story when I was drinking and I was living in the city in San Francisco and I'd sit on a bar and I would tell this story as some sort of self-flagellation. Whenever I would encounter something, an obstacle that I had difficulty overcoming, I would sit there and I'd beat myself up over and over that defeats like this were really indicative of my weak character. Just like my life, my defeat validated that deep insecurity that confirmed my low opinion of myself that I was a quitter. An opinion gained from being unsuccessful at almost everything I did in my life. My father was deeply disappointed, not by the fact that I lost, but that I quit. A friend asked me about it one day and remarked, gee, it must have taken a lot of guts to climb into that ring with 5,000 people watching. I said, you bet it takes a lot of guts. I didn't see anybody lined up at the steps to get in there. He said it's sad that you never gave yourself any credit for it. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a story, and what a unique voice. And we love finding new talent, and it's all over this great country. People who've just experienced real life, and they're not auditioning for a reality TV show, and they're not trying to become famous. They're people we all know, and some of them might be you, and you have great stories and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them. And it's so interesting that Bob got that friend's perspective. He got his dad's perspective, and his, his dad was right. 
he did give it to him. But, you know, sometimes we miss the good that we do and focus on the bad that that friend pointed out to him that he got in that ring to begin with. Well, it's true. He did. Bob McClellan's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on?' "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your grandma Sylvia.' "'He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me. "'leaning his warm body against my arm. "'He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. "'Who will that be to me?' "'He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago.' "'Max shrugged and resumed his ball-tossing. "'I already got a grandfather,' he said, not unkindly. "'Lots of kids have two grandpas. "'I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather.' "'Hmm.' Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. "'What about them?' he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. 
He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet, he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight-ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. 
I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling? he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance. That I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, "I notice I don't call you mom." I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. When I say Betsy, I mean mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death, and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die, or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, Bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? And what a beautifully told story! Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder. Her book. Filling her shoes, a memoir of an inherited family, and my goodness, that moment when she just is well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet 
She knows what the boy's been through, and it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story. Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. Just sit right there, I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you've come to know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, from history to the arts, sports, and your stories, too. That's the hour in Our American Stories, and we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and sign up for our newsletter while you're there, and we'll hit you with our best four or five stories every week. And you're listening to the theme song to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the highly successful television sitcom that ran from 1990 to 1996 and is on perpetually on cable. People always say sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you make it to the top. Things were no different for rapper-turned-actor Will Smith, and he almost missed his opportunity to be a part of a groundbreaking show. The story we're about to listen to is all about how Will Smith's life got flipped and turned upside down. We'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. Here's Will Smith to tell us how he became the star of the hit TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Before I was getting in trouble with Uncle Phil, I was in trouble with Uncle Sam. Me and Jeff had come out with our smash hit, Parents Just Don't Understand, we made a bunch of money, we won a Grammy, album was triple platinum. I had motorcycles and cars. I called the Gucci store in Atlanta, and I was like, Hey, will y'all close it down if I bring my friends? And I'm smiling, but that's stupid. We released our next album, and it was like a flop. It was a tragedy, it went like, double plastic. I had spent most of my money, like all of it. I spent all my money. And I didn't forget, but I didn't pay the IRS. In my mind, I mean, I wasn't like trying to avoid paying taxes. I was just like, oh damn, they need their money. The IRS took all, took all of that stuff. So I was like, broke, broke, broke. Being famous and broke is a combination because you're still famous and people recognize you but they recognize you while you sitting next to them on the bus and the stuff they ask you to sign on a bus you know like oh can you sign my baby that's a sharpie I, I probably shouldn't just write on the baby with that oh you too big to sign my baby well no nah, I mean you know so I signed it so I was like laying around and my girlfriend was like Dude, we're not doing this. Like, you're not just going to be laying around this house all day. You're going to go do something. And I was like, what? What am I supposed to do? Go where people is is doing it. Wh- where people doing it? Go to the Arsenio Hall show. Just go stand around at the Arsenio Hall show. Yes. That's stupid. Wake it up! So I went to the Arsenio Hall show, and I met a dude named Benny Medina. Benny Medina is the real-life Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, except he actually went from Watts 
to Beverly Hills. Same basic concept, way shorter distance. I meet Benny and he pitches me the idea for this show and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not an actor. I'm like, cool. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to meet Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is producing with me. So I find myself at Quincy's and there's actors and artists and celebrities and politicians, like everybody's at Quincy's house. It's like the whiz without the costume. So Benny walks me in and introduced me to Quincy. I'm like, hey Q, what's up, man? He's like, hey man, you know, I saw your music videos. I love, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Tell me your rap name again. They call me the Fresh Prince. All right, good. That's what we're gonna call the show. And he handed me a screenplay for a failed Morris Day pilot. Like, I don't have the time. So I need you to do this. I need you to go ahead, take a few minutes, take 10 minutes, study the script, and I'm gonna I'm clear all the stuff out the living room, and we're gonna have everybody sit down in the living room. We're gonna do an audition. He had movers that could reset his furniture. I was like, this dude is real. So he goes out and tells everybody, come on, come on, come on. And I was like, hey Q, hold up, man, hold up. I'm not ready to do no audition. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. Uh, well, what you need? Tell me what you need. Just set the meeting for a week and I could do it. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC, is out there. I'll get him to schedule for next week. And then you know what's gonna happen? Something gonna come up and then he's gonna have to reschedule. Oh yeah, yeah, so three, so three weeks from now, Q, we can do it three weeks from now. I said, yeah, 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 three weeks from now will be good. Or you could take 10 minutes right now and you can change your life forever. I was like, yes, give me 10 minutes. I said yes, and I let it rip. And I got to the end and everybody's clapping. Quincy looks at Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC. Did you like it? And Brandon said, yeah, yeah, I liked it, Quincy. He says, no, did you like it? And he's like, yeah, I liked it. He's like, good, you're his lawyer. Draw me up something right now. Damn, Quincy ordering other people's lawyers around. <laughs> like, that's his lawyer, Quincy, leave that man alone. And Quincy turned to me and he was like, hey, Will, you got a lawyer? Quincy, I'm broke. If I had a lawyer taking 5%, he'd owe me money right now. He was like, all right, and he turned to his assistant. He was like, get Will a lawyer. Quincy had been drinking. You know, it's probably obvious from the story, but he had been tasting. He, he had wet his beak a little bit that night. Yeah, so <laughs> the lawyers go out in the limo and they're drawing up the first deal for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Quincy is like popping up at the window, no paralysis, do analysis. No paralysis, do analysis. I'm like, how did he make Thriller like this? So we got the lawyers draw up something. Ken Hertz looked it over for me, Brandon Tartikoff, and we took a picture and we signed the, the, the basic deal for the Fresh Prince. And three months later, we were shooting the pilot. And that's the story of how I became the Prince of Bel-Air. So the moral of the story is always say yes, and I guess listen to your girlfriend. <laughs>And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's an entrepreneur's story right there. And that's what we do here. I mean, the arts show business, the business part. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org, type in Sly Stallone, because you hear the same story from Stallone at that key moment in his life when he had this script. And if you remember, Stallone kept, he, well, they wanted to buy the script from him. And they kept saying 50000 then then 100000 then 200000 And Stallone's like, man, that was more money than I was ever going to see in my whole life. Remember what he said? He said, my goodness, if that's a big hit and I'm not in it, I'm going to jump off a bridge. And so he just said, no, I'm not selling it. I got to be in the movie. And that business decision he made changed his life 
The decision Will Smith made changed his, and thank goodness he had a great advocate, a great businessman. Quincy Jones wasn't just a musician, folks. And Benny Medina, well, he's the real thing, and look up his name. What a story there. We should do that one, too. This is Lee Habib, Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Here it is, a groove slightly transformed. Just a bit of a break from the norm. Just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance? This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about Justin McElroy, a Huntington, West Virginia native who, like many of us, started his career on one path, but wound up on a completely different one. Here to tell us about it is Justin. I sort of got an acting and directing degree by default, um, which is to say... I didn't think about it much. I just sort of liked doing theater and didn't have much of a plan beyond that. I guess I, on some level, I assumed that if I had that, then I would either, like, I couldn't get a boring job. Like, there's only so many jobs uh, you can do with a theater major. Um, and that was about as far as the thinking went. Um, and at a certain point, um, probably about my junior year of college, I wasn't getting cast in like lead roles and it occurred to me I had this thought man if I can't get lead roles at my college in West Virginia how I don't think I'm gonna go to New York and make a living doing this and like I realized that and I tried to I almost switch my major to journalism just you know where the real money is uh, but I didn't I just kind of stuck it out ended up going to college for five years because I failed Spanish Ah, eh, them's the breaks and uh and then I graduated and uh, immediately put my degree to use uh, working at Best Buy uh, and Borders, the now defunct Borders. I like started freelancing while I was still working at um, Best Buy and Borders, um, writing a weekly section called The Edge. The Edge. For my uh, local newspaper that was like youth focused, um, you know, young people doing cool stuff in the area and I did that for years I did that to like because nobody else wanted to do it and uh, that's how I got my first job as a news editor at the Ironton Tribune I worked out from a reporter to news editor uh, which I was in no way qualified to do but I was cheap uh, and I started uh, from there I transitioned to the Herald Dispatch which is my local newspaper it's my hometown here in Huntington West Virginia covering Marshall University the University Beat uh, as it was I was actually there at a really fun time because it was uh, when they were filming the, the movie We Are Marshall. And the entire town was losing its mind. I mean, absolutely melting down with like frequent sightings of Matthew McConaughey and Matthew Fox and assorted and sundry other Matthews. Um, it, it, yeah, you cannot go into a subway here without the, there, there being a picture of Matthew McConaughey from the time he was at Subway. <laughs> it's, it is, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. All right, all right, all right. 
the entire time that I, I was working uh, in news, what I wanted to do was write about video games. I mean, that's where my, um, really my passion was. I, I had grown up on not just video games, but video game journalism. Like I had like four different magazine subscriptions to different video game publications growing up. Um, and it was, it was something I really cared a lot about. And I wanted to transition from writing straight news to write about video games because I thought that would just be the most fun thing in the world. But I started applying, trying to like do freelance gigs, trying to pitch articles, trying to take, um, the tactic that eventually worked was offering to do reviews that no one else would want to do. Just like bitter dregs, bottom of the barrel, uh, several hunting games, um, and that's eventually how I started building up clips. And I and I got to this race to try to work at as many magazines as I could before they got closed down because they were like a dying breed just as I was getting started. So I was like, okay, I got to get into official Xbox magazine and PlayStation, the official magazine and GamePro and PC Gamer and, you know, and on and on just so I could like get the clip before. And like after I worked at one, I would just stop because it's like, okay, I got that clip. I, I want to see how many different magazines I can get so I can put them on my my resume because I think I had a sense that that would make me seem very distinguished uh, pretty quickly as these faded out of existence but um, the story of how I got actually got hired at Joystick is hilarious and terrifying because I I put so I put uh, my whole career the reason I got onto this trajectory um, and everything that came after that was started with Joystick which was AOL's video game blog I had applied to Joystick and hadn't heard and like I, I was doing this with every publication every gaming publication i applied to joystick because i really like joystick and i applied to joystick and uh didn't hear anything for months and just to say and they hired two other people and uh meanwhile i was writing about video games for like the newspaper the herald dispatch let me keep my own video game blog and it was who cares like no one's gonna read my video game blog but i made it seem like something we should have you know, we really need a, a video game blog, guys. So I was, I was writing, a, it was called Blog the Video Game, which is stupid. Um, but I was, uh, so I was writing that, and uh, I found some old clips of this Laserdisc game called Gallagher's Gallery. And I thought, you know, Joystick might be interested in posting these. Uh, so I sent them off to Joystick, and the editor, Chris Grant, saw them. He is uh, a lovely person, but can be a little bit scatterbrained sometimes. Said, oh, yeah, I I was looking for your... I'm glad you sent this. I was looking for your content information. The people we hired didn't work out, but I remember liking your clips, and I was wondering if you, um, you know, would still be open to to working for us. There's a wild sequence of events uh, that, that would take from A to B were like, I had to find that Gallagher's gallery clip and I had to write a post about it and just happen to send it to Joystick. And like, there's a lot of luck tied up in that and it's pretty scary, but it's also like, I think there's something to be learned there from just who, who knows? Nobody knows, who knows? I don't know, who knows? Try everything. Cause you never know what spaghetti's gonna stick to the wall, honestly. We left Joystick, Chris Grant, Griffin, and I all left Joystick, and Arthur Geese left Joystick, and we were sort of the four uh, first people uh, of the eight co-founders of Polygon. So I started, I mean, I was the managing editor, sort of the number two person when when we founded the site. Um, I was really involved with Chris for a lot of... uh, 
the aesthetic decisions and the managerial decisions and figuring out who to uh, bring on and, and everything. Um, so I was sort of like his, his number two person um, and responsible for a lot of the stuff on the site. When we were at Joystick, uh, we did the Joystick podcast. We did 200-some episodes, and really, hel- it really built a really decent following. And the audience for the Joystick podcast was sort of like the seed audience or the base group of people that my brother, my brother and me, when we launched, was built from the Joystick Podcast audience because they were very rabid and supportive. And I've done that with every podcast I've launched since then. It's been about building off a seed audience, a core audience, and then moving them to a new thing. My brothers had lived in Huntington for my whole life. And when Travis went to college, uh, he, he went to school in Oklahoma University. And then Griffin went to school at Marshall and then the two of them moved to Cincinnati. And uh, I found that like we had started to lose touch. I mean, we weren't talking as much as we used to, not nearly as much as we used to. And uh, I wanted to see what we could do to change that. So my brother, my brother, me really started as an opportunity for the three of us to keep in better contact, to talk to each other more. Um, Griffin and I were in video games in that industry, but Travis really didn't know uh, that space particularly well. Um, so we picked advice as like just sort of a general topic that all three of us could like bloviate on, um, you know, tell people how to live their lives. It seemed pretty easy. Um, and at that point in, in podcasting, it was 2010. You didn't really need a great premise for a podcast. I mean, there was only like four of them. <laughs> so like that's exaggeration, but like there weren't a lot. So, it, you know, it, it is a much different day. You have to, uh, you know, these days you have to be very focused with your hitches, but um, we we had a pretty general one from a brother or brother me, but it, it worked out okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, I've uh, just, my baby monitor has just begun to go off, so I need to go upstairs and get the, my kiddo. If you need any, like, pick up stuff or anything, you know, you know this is missing, just give me a buzz and we'll just, like, hop back on Skype or whatever. It's It's no big deal. And that's how Justin left things off. And we wanted to know more. And by the way, what a unique voice. And we love voices from every industry, every age group, and every part of this great country. And my goodness, we wanted to hear more from Justin, and we know you do too. So after the break, we'll bring you more of his unlikely story and how despite numerous podcasts and hundreds of millions of downloads, they've kept family at the center of it all. Justin McElroy's story... Here on Our American Stories.
we're back with Justin McElroy's story, and we had heard about how he started a podcast to keep in touch with his brothers. Well, that just sort of accident, that just sort of diversion, ended up becoming his living. My Brother, My Brother and Me is one podcast, The Adventure Zone, and so many others. And that's the story of life, and we love telling stories like this on Our American Stories. Now let's hear about how much family means to Justin and how he's used his success to give back to his community. Back to Justin McElroy's story. We grew up goofy on each other, um, and that was the way that we would communicate. We would you know, try to make each other laugh, try to make dad or mom laugh. Um, and it was like a primary form of communication in our house. You know, things didn't get serious for too long. Um, I've later learned uh, in my adult years, sometimes to our detriment, there's a lot of like conversations that it's hard to work gags into, you know, but um, it can get tricky. We've, we've always said that like, if, especially as it became more of a job, we, we had to have a lot of really hard conversations. Like if this ever gets in the way of us being a family, like we have to stop, like the whole thing will stop. And having that there as sort of a escape hatch, no fight could ever be too big because you can't really walk away from it because it's your family. So you better figure out how to make it work. Um, and, and I think that like, we've, we've kept that spirit through all of it. Like our relationship as a family is always more important than the work. There's no, um, creative decision or anything that, that equals that. So when we do that, we keep that in perspective. I think it makes for a really fun place to, to collaborate in, um, because you're, you're stuck with your collaborators. I trust my family um, more than anybody on the planet. And I am myself at the, for the most, the people who are in my family are the people that, that truly know me with, with just a couple of exceptions. Um, so very dear friends, but, but by and large, I mean, my family is it. Um, and especially now that I have kids, that's it. Having children for me has like clarified so much of what we do because there is a point to all of it. And there's a value to um, every moment that I'm creating something is uh, a moment that I'm not spending with my kids. So I really, it has to all count. It has to all be worthwhile. Um, and involving them in, like when we go on tour and bringing our, our children um, has made it seem so much more purposeful um, and so much more worthwhile. Uh, and and that's really important to me and, and is a huge reason that, that this continues to be sort of the best best job I've ever had. We are probably in communication more than any family, certainly a family of adults that I know. I mean, we talk constantly um, and there's a warmth there and a familiarity, I think, that a lot of families don't have just because they're not in the like forced <laughs> proximity that we constantly are. I'm not complaining. It's just it's just the the, the facts of it. The Appalachian region uh, that that I am from is almost never represented well um, uh, in in mainstream media. I mean, there have been a couple of different TV shows. The the one TV show that was filmed in Huntington was Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, 
And that was uh, a show about him coming to Huntington to teach people how to eat because everyone was so overweight. Um, and it's like, that's that's like emblematic of, uh, there was another show called like Big and Loving It or something like that. That was like, people wanted to come like come and film people who are overweight and just like thrilled about it. And that, that, that project didn't come to fruition. But um, the, my region is very rarely represented very well. Uh, that that sort of idea that these states that aren't New York or California are just sort of like untenable backwaters that that from which no good can arise. There's so many cool, interesting people here, and their stories just aren't being told. Like it's not it's it, it you know it doesn't have that like mainstream exposure. Th- th- those stories just aren't out there, and for me. The podcast studio was just kind of a way to streamline it for people Um, because podcasting is not especially challenging to do. It's hard to do well, but it's not hard to do. And um, I felt like if if we could save a few steps, then maybe, uh, you know, we might be able to encourage some people to get some of those voices, some of those voices out there. I think the most effective way to tell their story is to let them tell it. Uh, and I feel like podcasting is a really great way to do that because there's very little barrier to entry. Anybody can pull a show together and broadcast a show and 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 grow that audience. Um, not to say everybody finds an audience, but it, but the barrier to like creating the content is low. Um, and I think that that like really empowers people to tell their own story and not have to rely on others to to tell it for them. And I feel like. The people here, uh, um, it's the sort of thing where they would, it, it is a tradition of, of storytellers, right? Like folk tales and stuff like that, like is part of our heritage. But um, I think just digitizing that and bringing it to a wider uh, community of people, I think is the best way to start to shift those stereotypes about people from this region. And like, and, and uh, I think it's amazing that the internet has allowed people to, to do that. We got this thing uh, in our area called the um, the empty stockings list, and it comes out every Christmas. And it's like people in the tri-state area, which for us is we're right on the border of Ohio and Kentucky in, in Huntington. So we think of that as like a region with Ashland and um, like South Point and Ironton place in, in Ohio. But uh, people in the tri-state area that don't aren't going to have anything for Christmas. And I think it was like five years ago. I was reading this list and it's like so depressing because it's not just like kids who want a Paw Patrol toy, although there is that, um, but it's like people who don't, who would like a, a better tent for sleeping on the river and people who like don't have a bed and stuff. And I took this list of, it's probably like 200 people. And I took this list to our, our Facebook page. And I said, like, if anybody that will help with this, that anybody that will do like give to this and buy something we will record a personal thank you to you um and we we did that it was called the mabimam angels is what i started calling them because they filled the entire list in the matter of a week they bought it all and then the following year we didn't ask they just did it and they the list came out and they filled it all uh and then the newspaper that puts the list together started giving it to them early and adding more things to it. And then after they fill the needs, they raise money and they've bought uh, 
beds and uh, furnaces and uh, uh, handicap accessible ramps. And um, I mean, like it's it's wild and it is like so not us. It is just them like in say last year and for the 2018 Christmas season, they did. They did not us. They did 16 beds, uh, 32 pillows, two sofas, two ovens, two strollers, a car seat, a refrigerator, table and chairs, eight space heaters, clothes, shoes and toys for every kid on the list. And it's like. It's like, I, I, that's not me. It's just, I'm really fortunate to have really good people who like our stuff. And when you're fortunate to have that, it just seems weird to not, you know, point it towards your home. And you were just listening to Justin McElroy and great job on that to our team as always. And we've long opined that the South Appalachia, a lot of flyover country. Well, it's just, if not misrepresented, not covered at all, and I'm not sure which is worse, uh, being slighted or being ignored. But here at Our American Stories, we do the opposite, just as Justin does. So many interesting and remarkable people live all over this great country, and that's why we decided to do a big national show out of a small town, because they all come from big towns, and that doesn't make any sense. Justin McElroy's story, a bit of a story about a misfit who just, well, never fit in until he did, and found his vocation by stumbling into it. And a story about his hometown, too. Again, Justin McElroy's story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when looking back through animation history, there are very few cartoons with as devoted a following as Scooby-Doo. And all of our history stories, and that's everything from the arts to sports and, well, of course, history history. All of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. Nineteen sixty-nine, America was approaching its fourteenth year fighting in Vietnam. A serial killer calling himself the Zodiac terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area with cryptic letters. Actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered at the hands of Charles Manson and his counterculture family of so-called flower children. With all this happening, the song topping the charts was this. Sugar Sugar was originally recorded by the fictional garage band The Archies, spawned from the cartoon series The Archies, which itself was based on the long-running comic book series. This version reached number one in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1969 and remained there for four weeks. It was the tail end of animation's golden age, 
In the early years of television animation in particular, parent advocacy groups like the now-defunct Action for Children's Television were pressuring television networks to drop violent action-adventure Saturday morning cartoons like The Herculoids. Fred Silverman, the head executive in charge of children's animation at CBS, sought new programming that would keep his Saturday morning block afloat while simultaneously keeping parental watchdogs off his back. The solution was to hopefully expand upon the massive success CBS found with the Archie show. So, Silverman contacted William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to develop a show in the Archie mold. Hanna-Barbera Productions were early pioneers in TV animation, having created shows like Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, and America's first primetime animated series, The Flintstones. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. The new Archie style show was initially called House of Mystery that would feature a teenage rock band and would solve mysteries in between gigs. Iwao Takamoto, an animation vet who got his start at Disney in the 40s, was assigned as designer of the project. From here, the series took shape as Mysteries 5. Much like the Archies, the band was also joined by a dog named Too Much, who played the bongos. Designer Takamoto, who had previously designed Astro from the Jetsons, took particular care in crafting Too Much by consulting one of his workmates a breeder of Great Danes. But after studying these prize-winning Great Danes, Takamoto ignored their signature characteristics, making too much bow-legged, with a sloped back and a double chin. When the show was finally pitched to CBS, the band was phased out. The name of the leader of the group, Ronnie, was changed to Fred after a subtle suggestion from Fred Silverman. An easily frightened and always hungry talking dog too much was renamed Scooby-Doo. Inspiration for his new name came while Fred Silverman listened to Sinatra's Strangers in the Night on a cross-country flight. CBS ordered 17 episodes and the show was introduced to generations of children on September 13, 1969 as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Just a few weeks before Sesame Street premiered. What's remarkable about Scoob's first episode is that it established everything that the franchise would be known for, from the plot structure to the visuals, making each episode feel unique yet familiar by inserting different monsters, settings, gags, etc. Let's take a deep dive into this mystery, getting some help from the gang who created the show. Jinkies! Jeepers! Come on, gang! Let's split up and look for more clues. Quick, do something, Scoob. <laughs> Here's the voice of Scooby-Doo, Don Messick. Well, in many cases, there are much younger children who don't understand that there are real people behind the character voices. And so usually they're kind of excited to, to learn that that's how the magic comes about. Here's animation historian Mark Evaner. Don Messick did the voice of Scooby-Doo originated, and Don was just brilliant at breathing life to that character. Here's the voice of the snack-loving beatnik Shaggy, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem. Well, I think Don got into the psyche of an animal 
<laughs> it was very much like Scooby-Doo. That dog was alive, <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was a being, a human being. And here's the old dog. He just invested that character with so much personality and made him so funny that it's impossible not to love him. Do I get a Scooby star? We'll look for one after we're off the camera here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Scooby-Dooby-Doo. I just got the idea for a trap that'll solve this mystery. Listen. Here's the voice of the confident, all-American, ascot-wearing Fred, Frank Welker. I would have to describe Fred as being... Uh, the guy in the group who has a license, and that's why the other kids have him around, so he can drive the mystery machine. Hang on, gang! The way that I got the part for Freddy, I was doing a stand-up routine, and within this routine, I did like a dog and cat fight, a lot of, you know... <laughs> and this executive said, you know, we're doing a show called Scooby-Doo, and there's a dog, why don't you come in and audition for Scooby-Doo? And I said, Great. So I went over there and I got the script and I saw Shaggy. This is me. Funny character. You know, and I'm always playing the straight guys. And so I sit down and meet Casey and he's just fantastic. I said, well, what part are you reading for? And he says, oh, I'm reading for Shaggy and I want to read for Freddy. The character I wanted to do was Fred. And so they said, no, we, we'd like you to read the, the other character, Shaggy. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what is it you want? And uh, he said, well, come up with something. And uh, what I came up with was, Scoobo, buddy, old friend, old pal, it's me. <laughs> Your friend Shaggy. Like what? My favorite. A double, triple, decker, sardine, and marshmallow fudge sandwich. Open the mouth, between the gums. Look out, stomach. Here it comes. They called me back three times, and a third time, Apparently, they, they, uh, they saw what they liked, and so they, they hired me. Well, gang, I guess that wraps up another mystery. Here's the voice of the bespeckled bookish Velma, Nicole Jaffe. My glasses! I can't see without my glasses. It was not my real voice, but it wasn't that far away. Velma lisps, I lisp. Velma has kind of a slightly kooky voice. I guess my voice is slightly kooky. I think my character set a good example for girls. They didn't have to follow around. They could lead. They could have the ideas. That's what I always liked about my character. Here's the voice of the attractive, accident-prone Daphne, Heather North. That's your cue, Daph. Right. Oh, no. My finger's stuck in the keys. I can't work the trick. Danger-prone Daphne did it again. Danger-prone Daphne. Yeah. Wait! Help me! The girl that had played Daphne for a short period of time had left and gone to New York to get married. Nicole Jaffe, David, was my roommate and said, get in here. They're looking for Daphne. You can do Daphne. Jeepers! I'm doing Velma. We could, we could do this together. This would be great fun. And I auditioned and got the part. And that was my first, really my first job as an agent, was getting her this. Together, these characters formed Mystery Inc. and embarked on countless mysteries to seek out the truth in their van dubbed The Mystery Machine. Predictably, the monsters always turned out to be humans in disguise. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along. And contrary to popular belief, the phrase meddling kids 
is never mentioned until episode 20 during season 2. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. But even then, it was not muttered with much consistency, only being said twice in the original series. After season 1 of Scooby-Doo, the series was a rating smash hit. Up to 65% of the Saturday morning audience was tuning in to Scooby-Doo, and its popularity hasn't slowed down to this day. There have been many spin-offs, blockbuster movies, and merchandising, but the heart of the characters has remained. And thanks to reruns, a new generation of kids get to enjoy Scoob in the gang as they solve their mysteries. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and that happens to be Greg's favorite cartoon, and he still loves it, and we all love our favorites. Scooby-Doo's story here on Our American Stories, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, always remember that because of our Constitution and because of the patent right, intellectual property is possible in this great country for artists to have their rights secured in ideas like Scooby-Doo, Straight to Bob Dylan, Our Greatest Movies, all of our arts and culture. Straight from our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. If we can count on you, Scooby-Doo, I know we'll catch that villain. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. 